The events surrounding Amnon and Tamar are extremely disturbing, and it may cause some distress upon those that hear it. Some parents may even be concerned about the graphic nature of this historical account and may wish to remove their children from the hearing of such horrible atrocities. And so I must caution all parents that while this particular sermon may not be as graphic as the last, it still deals with a very disturbing subject. And yet we must be reminded that this is the Word of God. The Word of God is, nevertheless, no matter how graphic or difficult the passages are, the Word of God is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that everyone, even our children, may be thoroughly equipped to navigate the wickedness of the world around them. Make no mistake about it, the world is quite wicked. We must navigate them so that they can not be swallowed up by it. As far as my duty as pastor of Christ's church and expounder of the word of God, I am bound by my commission to declare the entire counsel of God faithfully and without apology, no matter how difficult these passages or how disturbing these passages may be. Whether or not you wish for your children to remain for the duration of this sermon, I leave that entirely to your discretion and to your conscience. Beloved of the Lord, this is the 27th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 13, the first 29 verses, the first 29 verses, by the inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And it came to pass after this, that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Abnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Will not thou tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down, and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come, and make me a couple of cakes, in my sight, that I may eat it at her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house, and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out, every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? 
And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Albeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of diverse colors upon her. For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servants brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath not Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother, regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when the king heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon, because he had forced his sister Tamar. It came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, thy servant had sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not. Have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him up upon his mule and fled. James, James in chapter 1, beginning verse 13 through verse 15, explains to us the reason behind Amnon's wickedness. He says this, By inspiration of God, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the word of the Lord. The grass with this flower there fades away. The word of God stands forever and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now that Tamar is put out of Amnon's chamber in utter disgrace, the scripture says that she leaves with her royal robes upon her body, symbolizing her relation to the king and the proof of her virginity. Note the description of her clothing. 
In verse 18 it says, And she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. The robe in which Tamar wore was an embroidered garment, a very royal, rich, embroidered garment made with various colors signifying many, many things. It was quite luxurious. It was quite striking. And everyone would see the king's daughter and it would be a striking symbol of her royalty and her protection by her head, the king, her father under Christ, as well as her purity as one of the king's daughters. It first spoke of the fact that she was the daughter of the king. Not just one of the maidens. She was the king's daughter. Secondly, it signified that she was pure. She had not been with any man. She was pure. These facts are clearly spelled out in the text itself. But there's a very spiritual significance to the many colors in that they speak of something beyond the fact that she was the king's daughter or the fact that she was a virgin. It speaks of God's royal covenant which reflected the color of the rainbow in that he had put in the sky after the flood confirming his covenant promise to his own people. It was a covenant symbol. We are reminded of Jacob making his son Joseph a coat of many colors in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 3. And this was a royal robe signifying the the purity of the boy and, and the connection between Joseph and his father, one of the judges of Israel. These colors were the colors of the covenant, symbolizing royalty and purity and priestly honor. It appears also that Hannah had made a similar coat each and every year for young Samuel as well. Each year she would meet Samuel with another coat because he was growing in stature and wisdom. And this too seems to be a coat, a royal coat, a priestly coat of many colors. The many colors of This garment also reflected God himself as he reveals himself to Ezekiel in chapter 17 as a great eagle with great wings, long-winged and full of feathers, as the scripture says, arrayed with many colors. So picture the eagle now with his wings as a rainbow, with many colors, a covenant representation. Now these colors often are placed on a coat or a cloak, type of garment signifying not only covenant royalty and promise, but it was also a very full covering. It was a complete covering, a full covering of God's covenant covering of righteousness, of perfection, of his royalty and his promise to his people, as well as purity, because that covenant speaks to us as we are clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. You know, how do we think about that in a symbolic terminology? When we think about being clothed with Christ's righteousness, we should think about this robe of many colors. That the righteousness of Christ is like this robe he's put on us with many colors because we are the king's sons and daughters. Each of Christ's redeemed, his holy bride, are said to be clothed with his righteousness. The robe of righteousness of many colors symbolizing our purity before God in Christ. And this is what Revelation 14, beginning in verse 3, is symbolizing. John here is identifying the redeemed of God. Notice what he says. And they sung, speaking of the elect of God, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they 
the elect of God, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Notice the purity here. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So whenever you think about being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, think about the coat of many colors. Now when Sisera failed to return, the wicked man that he was, when Sisera failed to return to his mother because he was assassinated wonderfully by the woman Jael, his mother, Sisera's mother, lamented that he had not returned with the robes of diverse colors from the Hebrew virgins. Notice Judges chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried to the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? Her wise ladies answered her, saying, Yea. She returned answer to herself, Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two? To Sisera a prey of diverse colors, a prey of diverse colors of needlework on both sides, meet for the necks of them that take the spoil? Notice what is happening here. Sisera's mother, the wicked wench that she was, Sisera's mother was hoping that her son would go into the Hebrew nation, the camp of the Hebrews, decimate them, and then take the daughters, the virgin daughters of Israel, and violate them. And by doing so, taking the code of diverse colors, molesting that, symbolically degrading the covenant of God. But his efforts were thwarted by a woman. When Christ is pictured as the mighty messenger, in Revelation chapter 10, he is clothed with a cloud, And he is crowned with a rainbow upon his head, symbolizing that he is the covenant king. Notice Revelation 10, verse 1 and following. And I saw another mighty angel, the messenger of God, come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. This is the same revelation that John has recorded in chapter 1 of Revelation in those verses. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. The covenant colors of the rainbow. And this is why, when the wicked take to themselves their symbol of debauchery, and use the rainbow, They are violating. They are molesting the covenant of God. We need to take that symbol back. We need to bring it back to its purity without a second thought because they have stolen what was God's. Now Sisera and Amnon have much in common, especially since Tamar seems to represent God's people Israel, which is also a reference to the church of Jesus Christ. Now we can understand and even accept when the pagan man, the wicked man Sisera, desired to molest the church, to to take the virgins of Israel and, and destroy them, in the same way that the rebellious men of the earth seek to degrade, molest, and violate the people of God and the witness of the pure gospel. We can understand that. We can understand when, when Sisera has done that to pagans. 
the pagan that he is and the pagan people. But when people of the household of God, when those within the household of God, now remember, Amnon was within the household of the king. He was the firstborn of the king. When the wicked within the household of God seek to, to molest the church of Jesus Christ, as it was in the case of Amnon, that is entirely unacceptable. So when you see churches, now this infuriates me, when you see churches, so-called, with the rainbow flag, it should infuriate you too. And so when those claiming to be within the household of God seek to destroy the purity of the church, that is unacceptable. And this is exactly what is happening throughout history, especially during the days of Christ's earthly sojourn, when his enemies were those of his own nation. You know, we think that the enemies of Christ are out there, the, the, the deep state. Yeah, that's true. The evil state, the pagans, they're the enemies of the Christ. But so is the apostate church an enemy of Christ. We can't forget that. Notice what Jesus says. He warns his followers. He says in Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 36, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Those are incredible prophecies. Incredible words. We need to take them very seriously. Now, in one sense, Amnon may be a representation of apostate Israel and the apostate church, which seeks to molest, violate, and shame God's covenant people in a lustful act of violence and hatred against them. In another sense, Amnon may be a representation of apostate Israel as well as the apostate church, but also as a type of Adam, who was the king's firstborn, as Adam was God's earthly firstborn, or as Adam's firstborn Cain. There's all of these connections. So having been wickedly molested, Tamor now laments. And you must weep for this poor woman. Consider the shame, the depth of the shame in which she feels. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. Now, her actions speak of the depth of her grief. Now, consider what actually she is doing, what her actions actually symbolize. Well, first, she places ashes on her head. Now, the head is symbolic of the principal part of the human being. In Tamar's case, her historical headship was her father, but her spiritual headship was Christ. Solomon states that the grace of God is likened to an ornament of grace which is placed upon the head of an individual. So by placing ashes on her head, Tamar is symbolically saying that her headship of grace and her headship of the Christ who bestows grace has been violated, molested, and disgraced. No longer could she claim her father as her rightful head, since Amnon violently took that away from her. No longer could she exclaim that she was under a headship which was righteous. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, once a sexual union takes place, a headship connection is formed. 
there is a spiritual yoking between the two parties. And we understand this in the context of marriage, where the two become one, when the marriage is consummated, and where the husband becomes the head of the wife, and where the two wonderfully, gloriously, lovingly, under the covenant and in the covenant and being blessed by the covenant are yoked together through that union. That is a wonderful thing. But the yoking between Amnon and Tamar was not within the covenant of marriage. Amnon's actions stripped Tamar of her virginity, making her a harlot. In effect, the two actually did become one. The two became one, making Amnon Tamar's wicked and hateful head, even though it was an unlawful union. Notice what Paul says. He explains this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.16. He says, what? Know ye not? In other words, you should know this. This should be plain as the nose on your face. Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. So Tamar is lamenting because she understands that she has been made a harlot by Amnon's violation of her. And so she places ashes upon her head in shame. Secondly, she then tears her robe. This signifies that her virginal covenant has been violated. She is no longer pure. She then lays her hand upon her head, since that is where the shame was placed. And she weeps. She weeps for what has happened. She can't take it back. Can't undo it. And that's something we have to think about. When actions are committed, there are repercussions. You cannot take it back. You must contemplate what you're going to do before you do it, because there are consequences. Actions result in reactions. But there may be a spiritual message here beyond the physical and symbolic rape of Tamar. Consider for a moment Amnon, the firstborn of the king, as a type of Adam, the first Adam, who violated his headship responsibility by not protecting his wife Eve while in Eden. Consider further Eve as a representation of the elect of God, who must now bewail their virginity under the headship of fallen Adam until another Adam comes along, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to remove the shame of defilement by taking to himself the church as his lawful wife and thus becoming her head. And that is what the book of Hosea is all about when Hosea is told to take to himself an unclean woman of whoredoms for his bride. The gospel is there, right there. Once Christ purifies his bride from the destructive power of sin and rebellion, he removes her defiled garments and clothes her with his covenant garment, that richly righteous robe of Christ of many colors, that rainbow colors, symbolizing that she is now pure, her purity is restored, and her promises are in Christ, yea, and not nay, and they are hers for all of eternity. It is in a glorious word picture. Now, David understood that. David understood the importance of these garments, which would be reserved for the bride of Christ. Notice what he says in his Psalm 45. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 13. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Notice, she's pure. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. 
The virgins, her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy father shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Notice in fine needlework. This is speaking about the coat of many colors. This is speaking about the virginal robes of purity, the priestly robes of Christ given to us. Now Tamar's grief and shame, it's too great to conceal. And as a result, Absalom notices. And his astuteness is astonishing. Of course, what he sees is what she's doing. She cannot hide her grief. He sees the ashes. She, he sees her coat of many colors that, that was given to her by her father, the king, is torn. And she is not herself. And he's very astute. And his astuteness is astonishing. Notice what he says in verse 20. And Absalom, her brother, and notice how the phrases are used. Tamar, my sister. No, my brother. Absalom says to Tamar, my sister, notice the connection of siblings, which makes this crime of rape so much more egregious. And Absalom said to her, Hath Amnon thy brother, notice, he is thy brother. I am thy brother. Amnon thy brother. Has Amnon thy brother been with thee? He rightly surmised that this was the case. One of the most obvious possibilities is he saw what she was going through. But there may be a number of other possibilities. He may have understood Amnon's desire for Tamar to be quite obvious. His desires for Tamar might have been obvious. While Amnon may not have realized that he was telegraphing his lusts, and that's usually what happens. We don't realize we're telegraphing our lust, but everybody else sees it. So even though he may not have realized that he was telegraphing his lust, they may have been evident to the observant eyes and ears of those around him. And this tells us that it's almost impossible to hide our lusts, especially when we fail to mortify it quickly. It may even be possible that there were others who had surmised of Amnon's lustful desires, not only Absalom. Another reason might be that there were whisperings in the, in the palace about Amnon's desire. There may have even been whisperings about the rape itself. Another possibility, Absalom may have been suspicious of his half-brother Amnon all along. And when he saw his sister in such a state, he put two and two together and he understood what happened. A fourth possibility is that Absalom very much may have disliked, even perhaps hated, his half-brother Amnon. One reason for this possibility is that Absalom uses a variation of Amnon's name in the Hebrew to insinuate a disdain for the man. Now, of course, in our English language, we could never find this out. But when you look at the Hebrew Absalom uses a variation of Amnon's name in order to insinuate that he really didn't like this guy. According to Hebrew scholar V. Philip Long, Absalom refers to Amnon, whose name originally means faithful, as Aminon. 
not Amnon, but Aminon, which is a totally different name. Reverend Long says this, Absalom's pronunciation of Amnon is unique to the Old Testament and may represent a disparaging phrase. In other words, Absalom was insulting Amnon's name by calling him Aminon, since to call him faithful was ironic because he was anything but, he was anything but faithful, he was a seducing reprobate. Now a final possibility is that Absalom was envious of his half-brother. Now we don't know that for sure, but this might have been the case. Amnon was first in line to the throne. He was firstborn of the king, slotted to be the first man to be on the throne. And Absalom knew Amnon some, that Amnon was also quite lazy. He probably knew that he was selfish. He was a man who was given too much drink, and that's what he used against him later on. He was a selfish man who could never rule the kingdom well after his father David died. Now these are all summations. But by this time, it seems as if David's second son, Chiliab, or as he's sometimes called Daniel, is actually, as it is actually translated, is pretty much out of the picture. We don't really know why, but he's no longer to be found in Scripture. Perhaps since it was Amnon, Chiliab, and then Absalom, now that Chiliab is out of the picture, perhaps Absalom thought, in his mind, he thought that he should be next in line for the throne. He was more ambitious. He understood more about the political things of the kingdom. And he was a man who was prideful in his own right. And so his solution to Tamar's problem may very well be the solution to his own problem. In light of this, consider Absalom's counsel to Tamar, since it is very cunning but it is also murderously crafty. Notice what he says. Something very hard for her to, to think on, but this is what he counsels her. He says, But hold now thy peace, my sister. Notice again, my sister. In other words, I care about you. My sister, I care about you. He, Amnon, is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Absalom tells his sister three things. Don't say anything. Put it out of your mind as if to say, don't worry, I will handle it. I think it's telling also that he identifies her as his sister. If we are to read into this, we would have to conclude that by still calling her his sister, he is not shunned from what happened. He is not dissuaded from still loving her because of what happened. He is not looking at her as impure. He said, you are my sister. I love you. You are my blood. You are the king's daughter. So he makes sure he calls her his dear sister. In his mind, she's still pure. She's still the king's daughter. And everything will be okay. And for this, we should give Absalom credit for loving his sister and actually lamenting for her since he is seeking to comfort her by his words. We might read this as, Don't worry, you are still my sister, you are still the king's daughter, you are still beloved of me and your father, I'll handle everything. Now, while this may have offered little comfort to Tamar, it seems to be an attempt at some consolation, nevertheless, even though slight, because what was done to her could never be undone. Secondly, Absalom then reminds Tamar that Amnon is her brother and she should not disclose what happened. Now, this counsel might be a little callous, but as we shall see, Absalom 
by giving this counsel, has an ulterior motive because of his plan against his half-brother. So by reminding Tamar that Amnon is still her brother and nothing at this time should be said concerning the incident, Absalom may be referring to the penalty for the crime. Because there's a crime here. A twofold crime. In Absalom's mind, this crime was worthy of death. But was it? What was the penalty for Amnon's sin? Did it have to be a death sentence? Was the crime mandatory? Was it a crime of mandatory death? Or was the death sentence the maximum penalty for the crime? More on this aspect later when we look at the law as we continue to explore the situation. But for now, Absalom wanted his brother to pay the maximum. He wanted the maximum penalty to be put upon his brother, half-brother, for violating his sister. You see, Absalom wanted Amnon to die. And since Amnon's crime was twofold, incest and rape, Absalom would agree with nothing less than the death penalty, and it would be by his hand. Absalom seemed to be concerned that since Amnon was the king's son, a just penalty may not be forthcoming. That was a valid assumption. Perhaps in, in in Absalom's mind, Perhaps in Epsilon's mind, this was family business and it will be settled within the family according to his discretion. And he obviously, from history of his father, he obviously didn't trust his father, David, to give the maximum penalty for the crime. However, once the word gets to the king's ears, and it does, because everything comes to the king's ears eventually, David is wroth. He is absolutely furious But what is astonishing and disconcerting and frustrating and mind-boggling is we don't read anywhere that David did anything about the situation, even though it says he was exceedingly wroth. There wasn't even reproof. We don't even read that he scolded Amnon. No reproof for the wickedness against Tamar. No chastisement. Forget about any penalty. No exile, no restitution. He didn't even ask the man to say he was sorry. Nothing. And yet he was angry. We only read, we only read that David was, was furious. My question is, so what? Okay, so you're angry. Does anger for a capital offense only require being angry? Is there not to be consequences for an evil deed? No penalty? No justice for the victim? Is not the law of God pure and His commandments to be followed, especially when a crime has been committed? These are all rhetorical questions, of course, whereby the answers are obvious to any rational person, and yet nothing happened by the hand of David to remedy the situation. Tamar was still lamenting. She was still violated. There was no restitution, no satisfaction to what was done for what was done to her in such a malicious and deceptive fashion. She still bore the shame and self-reproach. Well, Amnon, Amnon, he got what he wanted and he just went about his business as if nothing happened. That is not justice. That is not even mercy. So not to bring judgment against the criminal was as unjust as it could possibly be. It was a violation of every principle of justice that God's law laid down for the stability of the entire nation. And this is why we're going to see the entire nation unravel. John Calvin comments, notice what he says. Now we are taught in this passage 
that it is not enough for evil to distress us, but that we should also correct it, or at least make an effort as far as we are able. We must eliminate the evil and indeed force ourselves to do it. Above all, fathers are instructed here. When they see that their little children have done wrong, it is not enough to be angry, but they should use whatever correction is necessary for the child to be brought back to the right path and see that they have no further opportunity to let themselves go astray by keeping them under control, end quote. All of these things, written for our admonition, for our reproof, for our correction and our training in righteousness, so that we would be equipped for every good work. Now the question, however isn't what was not done, but rather the question is, why was not anything done? We know what was not done, but why wasn't anything done? Why did David not do anything? Well, first consider what factors underlie the perversion of justice. That's really the question. But it's not only the question which we must apply to this situation in Israel's case, but it's a question which must be answered even in our day. What are the underlying factors for the perversion of justice? One factor concerns itself with a two-tier justice system where those in power and authority are not persecuted for their crimes. You see, again, Amnon was next in line for the kingdom. He was the king's son. He was the president's son, the king's son. How could the king's son be criminally held accountable? Because it would upset the apple cart. The dynasty of the king would be interrupted. The family would be put in a consternation. Another factor concerns itself with who you know. If you know people in authority, or you are related to people in authority, because justice is perverted, you can probably skate the legal process and come out smelling like a rose. That's exactly what's going on in America today. We are watching this happen before our eyes. The scriptures are eternal and they're applicable to every era of history. The third factor whereby justice can be perverted is money. If you have enough money, you can purchase enough legal power and often escape without a scratch. And this is why God is careful not to allow this sort of perversion when it comes to justice. And we saw this in the O.J. Simpson case. Have enough money, pay enough lawyers, you can get away with anything. Notice what Moses says. Leviticus 19.15 Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. But now we must ask, why is justice perverted? What does the perversion of justice signify to a nation and its people? Well, the answer is simple. Once a nation perverts justice, it signals a total breakdown of society. And since the organizing principle for any society is to remain just and secure in its laws, if those laws are thwarted, the organization of the culture, the society breaks down. We must get back to the law of God. Because if the law of God is neglected, 
or in the worst case scenario, inverted as it is today, even the laws of man who seem to have at least some harmony with God's law is no longer the law, but that's been inverted. You see, once this happens, no one is safe. No one is safe in America today. As long as the laws are perverted, no one is safe. And because no one is safe, the nation is on the verge of collapse. And what we are witnessing today in America is a chaotic justice system and the rumblings of a nation in peril. But these rumblings are not unique to the United States. They are global. One of the reasons for this global pandemic is due to the failure of the Christian church. And if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. It's the church that has been given the stewardship of the law of God to disseminate it and then to make it absolutely sure that justice in their nation, in their community, is not perverted. We have to make absolutely sure that justice is never perverted. We have to stand for what is right, what is fair, what is good, what is holy, what is honorable. And we must call out the wickedness of those that wish to pervert that justice. Where's the outcry from the pulpit? So instead of the church establishing itself as a voice of justice and truth, of righteousness and equity, it has transformed itself into a 5th century Roman philosopher. Let me explain. Some 1500 years ago, a Roman philosopher named Bothius was unjustly imprisoned by his enemies. While in prison, he wrote a little treatise called The Consolation of Philosophy. It was his belief that if he immersed himself in philosophical pursuits and philosophical contemplations, that he would be able to find happiness and security in a world of hate and injustice. That sounds so flowery, so nice. I want to just vomit. In other words, he was a philosophical pietist. In his little book, he contemplated that when faced with injustice, one should just contemplate on the good that one has experienced in his life and ignore the wickedness of men and the injustice of nations. He said that we should just hide within the security of our own mind and be happy. Because in our own mind, we could shut out the world of wickedness and be happy. But the problem for poor deluded Bothius is that by hiding within a philosophical head-scratching, nothing gets fixed. His philosophical contemplation only exacerbated the problem since it left the problem unchallenged and unchecked to grow and metastasize into a behemoth of evil and injustice. So when we remain silent, we create opportunity for the wicked. The church has done exactly what Bothius did by its failure to address the problems of the culture. Theological contemplations without its application solves nothing. Instead of leading the charge against injustice, Bothius contemplated philosophy to assuage his grief and secure for himself a false sense of happiness. It was all about himself. In effect, he hit his head in the sands of philosophical mumbo-jumbo and opted for a nihilistic misery instead of speaking out for the truth. We are called to speak the word of God. And so instead of doing something justly about the injustice of Amnon, David does nothing. 
nothing. Our beloved David, our king, our type of Christ, does nothing. Oh, he's angry. He does nothing. Now one would think, knowing Absalom, that his response to this incredible crime might be reactionary. But it wasn't. You don't read anywhere of Absalom running into Amnon's chamber and lobbing off his head or stabbing him with a dagger. No, that's not what he was doing. In fact, it was something no one would expect. Absalom says nothing, says nothing about the incident. The control of this man's anger was absolutely supernatural. He controlled his anger for another day. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon neither good nor bad. Kind of just lay back. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now consider for a moment the resolve of Absalom. First, the scripture is very clear at this point that he hated his brother because of what he did. The Hebrew word used here for hate is actually the word which means enemy. He considered Amnon his enemy, his sworn enemy. In fact, think about the Hebrew word. It shows the depth of Absalom's hatred for his brother, his half-brother. The Hebrew word used here is the word sotnei, S-A-W-N-A, sotnei, which is the form of the word setuan, which is usually translated as either adversary or in the King James Version, Satan. It is the most emphatic form of a hatred. I hate you so much. You are now my sworn Satan. You are my sworn enemy. You are my sworn adversary. And so Absalom considers his half-brother Amnon his adversary, his enemy, his Satan. Secondly, not to act speedily against Amnon shows great restraint. As I said before, so almost supernatural. But it also shows something else. Very cunning. Absalom would exact justice for his sister when Amnon least expected it. There's an old Arab saying. I learned this many years ago, speaking with a former FBI agent who was an undercover agent within the, the terrorists of, of the Arab nation. And he told me that there was this very popular saying among the Arabs when speaking of vengeance. They would say, revenge is a dish best served cold. Absalom would wait. Absalom would wait to serve up his vengeance to Amnon at a later day when he least expected it. Thirdly, by Absalom's seeming indifference to the rape, Amnon... I'm sure he knew that there were rumblings. I mean, Tamar was out of her mind in sorrow. But because Absalom didn't do anything, seemingly indifference to the rape, Amnon was lulled into a false sense of security as if there would be no repercussions for his crime. That's what Absalom wanted. Amnon's guard would be down, thinking that all was well and forgotten, for surely he was the king's son. That was not to be. As we shall see, Absalom is carefully orchestrating a most dreadful sentence of vengeance against Tamar's rapist. 
as a just recompense of his action. We will examine that next when we continue in our series of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.